Let me begin um, our Advent series. Let me pray, and um, um, I want to reframe your thinking about Christmas this morning. And, it, and it's a challenge. It really is. So let's, let's, uh, let's get in the mindset of Advent, okay? And we're going to begin December with Advent, and that is the Christmas season. And it is exciting, and it's warm, and it's filled with lots of laughter and great food and drink and hosting people. But I want us to come to an understanding of what it's really all about. So, Father, lead us this morning, I pray, that you would give us a new, new perspective, a brand new perspective that we may not have ever thought about um, that comes from your word, Jesus, as you teach us why it is that you came. To this earth in Jesus' name, Amen. So let me tell you a story. And as we begin this Advent, this story may be never—you've never heard this story before—but it has all the elements of a good story. It's got a plot and a setting. It's got characters that has a point of view and a conflict. Okay, you got to have all those to have a good story. So here it is. And here's—I wrote this, so you know it's—it's it's not perfect, but this is. This is kind of the way I see the story. Once upon a time, there was a nobleman who went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. He had 10 slaves, and he told them to work for, for, uh, for him, utilizing all of his resources until he would return with full rights of his kingdom. When he returned, the citizens of the land rejected him and his kingdom outright hated him and refused his kingdom invitation. But his slaves, however, were very, very loyal and faithful and showed their new king their loyalty by presenting their productivity, except for one slave who did nothing with what he was given. The king rewarded his slaves for their faithfulness by giving them even more responsibility to manage and care for each five cities in his kingdom. Five cities, nine faithful slaves, which essentially was putting the entire kingdom in their control. To the one who did nothing, he was stripped of his authority and all that was given to him was taken away from him. And then the king did something that might seem really cruel. I mean, ruthless, downright barbaric. He ordered that all of the enemies that were against him serving as the king of his own kingdom be gathered up who did not want him to reign and ordered them to be slain. Does this sound familiar? Have you ever heard that story before? In fact, it's a reference to Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 28. It's actually a parable that Jesus taught. And we rarely focus on this parable. We really don't know what to do with it, oftentimes we're not sure where it fits and what the main purpose and idea is and what's it supposed to be teaching us. And yet, look at it. I mean, you're welcome to look and see. I basically paraphrase Luke chapter 19 all the way from verse 11 all the way down to 28. They were listening Jesus was telling them a parable, a nobleman, distant country, receive a kingdom. He had 10 slaves. He gave them 10 minas, told them to do business. The citizens hated him and sent a delegation saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. I mean, it's all right there. And then he comes back and he rewards each of his servants. And, and then 
he punishes the one and then he gathers up his enemies and, and he slays them. And it's like, yikes. First of all, this is a very crazy story, right? I mean, we all kind of commit to that. Like, what do we do? What can, where does it fit? It sure most certainly doesn't fit in the Christmas story. It's not very Christmassy, is it? I mean, frankly, there's no angels. There's no baby. There's no manger. There's no wise men. There's no shepherds in the field at night with their, you know, their, clo- their, their cloaks and their staffs and, and their, their gray beards and all of that. They're, they're not there, right, in this story. That's my favorite part is the shepherds out at night and they're tending to their sheep and, and you can see all the stars and then the one big star shows up. And th- I, th- I just imagine that. That's kind of the, the part of the Christmas story that captures me. It, this story is just downright nasty. It's harsh and it wouldn't fit in our, Christian tr- our Christmas tradition nor our Christian tradition. It doesn't fit under the tree. Each year, let's gather around the tree and examine our faithfulness and let's slay the naysayers. How's that sound for Christmas this year? Should we give it a try? It's like, no, of course not. It doesn't fit. It just doesn't work. But in fact, in each of the four gospels, what I am going to do this morning, attempt to do, is do what each of the four gospels do in the beginning of their gospels. There's four writers that tell the same story about Jesus in different ways. And Jesus is the main character. And each of the four Gospels describe the beginning as Jesus being born as a king and bringing a kingdom. And I suspect that you've never thought of Christmas that way. And I want to reframe your thinking and reframe Christmas from the perspective that what we celebrate this season is a king that is born over a kingdom. And you and I have an opportunity to become part of those loyal, faithful servants that get to serve in the kingdom and get rewarded for our service. And that's the gospel story. And I bet we've never thought of it that way. In fact, if you turn to to Mark, just one one example, if you just look at Mark chapter 1, let's look at the beginning and the very first words Mark says are these words, and here it is, in Arche, in the beginning. What beginning? In the beginning of the world, in the beginning of time, in the beginning of me writing my story. We're not sure, but probably a lot of those things, maybe all of those things, that in the beginning, the most important thing is Mark says. Mark's always in a hurry. Mark's always right to the point. I love that about Mark. Just gets after it. The gospel, the euangelia, the euangelia is is a word that we, we get evangelize. And we go around the world evangelizing, but what are we saying when we evangelize? The word actually means to herald the good news. And what's the good news? In the mindset of, of Mark's readers, the good news is the king has been born over the kingdom. That's the good news. It's, it's what happens every time a new king is established. There are these heralders. They go out, and they go out the kingdom, and they let everybody know that a king has been born or a king has been established, and they euangelia, they, they, they evangelize. They, they, they go out, and they, they, they do the heralding to bring the news that a king has been established in order 
to develop a loyalty around this king, that the kingdom would be loyal to this king and the king in return would be faithful to its subjects. And that's the word Mark uses, that this idea that a king has been born, that of Jesus, Jesus Christos. Christos means literally in Hebrew, Messiah. And that refers all the, all the way back to the Old Testament that talked about what Fadi just read in Psalm chapter uh, 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 72, and also you find it in Psalm 110, you find these, re- or you find these references to the fact that one is coming, a king is coming, and this king is really important. And it's the Messiah, it's, it's the Messiah of Israel, it's the king of Israel that will establish the kingdom forever, for all of eternity. And there was an expectation, there was a waiting, there was a, there was a longing for this to happen. And all of a sudden, Jesus is born and he's declared the Messiah, the king over Israel. And yet, what Mark is trying to say and all the gospel stories are saying is he's opening up this kingdom worldwide for all people, for all times. And this Messiah, this king, is a benevolent Messiah, a benevolent king for the entire world. And it also says, I mean, just a, just a little small tidbit of information regarding this. It's, it's God's rule on earth and his rescue of Israel from its troubles and failures. That's what, it's, it's, it's one who comes to administer this. That's what a king does. And it also says that he's the son of God. Do you see that right away? He says, this is the son of, this is the Christos, the Messiah, but he's the son of God. This is not a son as in your son that's born from you, that's not you, but someone that maybe looks like you, that acts like you. This is actually God himself coming to earth as a child and is the son of God and plays a human role, but is also divine from God, the divinity of God. The divinity of the king is established here. In fact, this goes all the way back to Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar was king over Israel, sorry, it's in my notes, Israel. And it's not Israel, it's Rome. So too bad it didn't autocorrect there. Um, But there it is. It's not Israel, it's Rome. And when Julius Caesar was king over Rome, he he had a son. He needed a son, and he didn't have a son, and so he adopted Octavius. And Octavius became became known as Augustus Caesar. Did you know that? That his adopted son, Octavius, becomes Caesar Augustus. Julius Caesar's adopted son then becomes the king. But he is known when he became adopted as Caesar's son, the son of God, because it's actually in Latin, divi filius, the son of the divine Julius. And so in the mindset of a first century reader, they're thinking the son of God is Caesar Augustus. He's divine. His father was divine, so he's divine. And Mark is diving into history, and he's he's bringing a sword into history, and he's opening it wide up and he's opening history and he's basically saying no that's not true there's another king that's even more powerful there's another king that's being born and with a greater kingdom than even Caesar Augustus king and you think Caesar's divine this guy's really legitimately divine this is the one 
This is the true kingdom. And that's how Mark begins his gospel. And that's how Christmas should begin. It's not very Christmassy, but it most certainly establishes what we know to be true. In fact, in, it, I won't even go there. Never mind. I'm going to skip that point. If you want to hear it, it's on the beach recording. But anyway, let's move on. But here, let me get to the point. Let me get to the reality of this. This is really exciting. The idea of Jesus becoming king in a kingdom as the Christmas story, as once you unwrap the present, is this. Take the ribbon off, rip open the present by tearing away the colorful, fancy paper and see what's inside. And what you find is the real gift of Christmas. It's the story about God himself coming to earth to be king and rule, rule over a kingdom, and we all get to invite, invited to be joined in. There's no middle ground, and it's scary. It's a very harsh reality, but isn't that true about all kingdoms and all kings in all of known history? There's a sense of loyalty. There's a sense of rewarding and honoring. I mean, even Caesar Augustus awarded and rewarded Herod kingship over Palestine in the first century. I mean, he was given that reward as a faithful, loyal servant of Caesar. As king, he would have to crush his enemies because he had to. There's no internal rivalry in a united kingdom. So many implications here. Well, wait, you might be thinking, in this Luke chapter 19 parable, people get slain. I mean, that's, that's downright horrible. I mean, come on, How, what are we going to do in our Christmas story with people actually getting slain? And the encouraging thing, and what I want to, the first thing I want to point out to you is, is there's a time gap here. In the story, he goes away and comes back. Jesus is born king, but he goes away and he comes back, and he's coming back, and he's, he's being pronounced king over his kingdom. And there's time, which is so encouraging. There is time. You may be saying, well, I don't want to accept Jesus as my king. I don't want to join in. I'm not, maybe, maybe I just don't know enough yet, and I'm still thinking it all through. Great. But think about it. What the parable is teaching us is that you will serve someone in your lifetime. And you made something or someone king over your life and that thing you have put in your life as supreme will either reward you greatly or it will destroy you and that is reality and Christmas is about a season of remembering but also a, 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 a season of deciding who will be your king choose wisely is Jesus the rightful king of your life? And if Jesus is king and God is bringing a kingdom to earth and his kingdom with Jesus reigning, then there's no one else that can be king. Caesar can't be king. Herod can't be king. You can't be king and I can't be king. In other words, if Jesus is king, you are not. And there's no middle ground. No wonder there was so much hostility. No wonder they put him to death. He brought a rival kingdom to the world. 
But before he died, he represented that kingdom. And he represented it so well that at the end of Mark, in Mark chapter 15, verse 29, when Jesus is on that cross, and they thought they put an end to the rival king Jesus, a centurion, a Roman centurion, loyal to King Caesar, living in Palestine, part of the Roman infantry, looks up at the cross and sees Jesus and he knew his life and he observed his life of his miracles and his teaching and his compassion, his passion for compassion. He saw Jesus live out a life different than any other king he's ever seen before. And what does he say on the cross? What does he say looking up at the cross? He says, surely this man truly is the son of God. Could you imagine Caesar's own, a member of Caesar's own infantry claiming such blasphemous claims that there is another king more powerful than Caesar. And every single one of us will have to decide that. And there's a time gap here, so there's time for us to think and to pursue and to pray and to consider. But it will come. Who are you loyal to? There was a time in the Old Testament, I want to tell this story and it's the story of Elijah. And you know the story. Uh, we did a whole series on the, on the life of Elijah and how Elijah came to Israel in the 9th century B.C. because Israel had literally fallen away and no longer saw God as their king but chose another, an, an, another idol, a lesser king, Baal, to put in their lives to worship. And there was this tug of war between God and Baal in Israel and Elijah came to set things straight. There was a famine on the land, famine because of uh, uh, a, a drought for three and a half years. Israel was failing. It was a horrible time in, in the life of Israel. I mean, this, the nation was falling apart. The king was misled by the queen Jezebel and the prophets of Baal, and the whole country had kind of slid the other direction. God calls Elijah to come. And he meets Ahab, and he tells him there will be rain. There won't be rain for three and a half years. Three and a half years, Elijah waits. And then God says, go to Ahab and tell him it's going to start raining. But before it starts raining, gather all the people in, on Mount Carmel. And then it says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 29, turn to the people and ask them the question, who will you serve? Either God or Baal. But choose whom you will serve. It's a decision that each person has to make. And Elijah gave the nation of Israel an opportunity to turn back to their king. That was a precursor. That was a, that was a, a, a reminder in the Old Testament that one would come that would set all things straight. And that the kingdom Jesus was bringing was a better kingdom. Well, I don't see that kingdom. I, I don't. Do you see the kingdom? I, it doesn't seem to be working itself out in this world today. Where is this, this kingdom? In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, and I end with this. John, 
who announces that Jesus is the king, gets arrested, and he's beheaded. The last great prophet before Jesus. And Jesus goes around Galilee at this time preaching the gospel of God. In other words, he's heralding the good news that he's the king. I mean, he's the king, and he's walking around going, I'm the king. Do you want to be loyal to me and have me provide for you, and you live in my kingdom, or do you want to live in your own kingdom and see how things work out? It reminds me of that silly scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It just popped into my head this morning. It's a very sacrilegious story of a a fictitious king, King Arthur, over the Britons doesn't really exist and he wasn't really their king but it's the story of him trying to find the holy grail and so he's in search and he's going through a Britain and he sees these peasants working the mud and they're they're making mud patties and they're covered in mud and they're desperate they're destitute and King Arthur comes by and he's got his parade of people behind him and he looks down at these people and say good people and, and they look up at him and go, who are you? And he says, I'm your king. And they look at each other and say, we didn't vote for you. And King Arthur looks back at him and says, you don't vote for kings. It's one of those, you know, it's, it's British humor, but it's classic. You don't vote for kings. You don't get to decide who's going to be the king. And yet you do get to decide whether you will be loyal to that king if you believe that king has something to offer. And maybe that boils down the idea as Jesus went around saying, I am the king, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel, the euangelion. And I'm gonna say something, I'm gonna say something that I've been thinking about all week that I probably shouldn't say, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Something I've been thinking, and this is always dangerous, but I feel like it's heartfelt. I feel like we have reduced the gospel down to a transaction. And I feel what has harmed the church in the last decade or so that has caused a slimming down that has caused a major departure of many people from the very institution that Christ established on this earth for this purpose and this purpose alone. To be kingdom loyal subjects, servants of the king, and to do the work of the kingdom. And a lot of Christians have seen the gospel as a message of salvation and eternal life. I get forgiveness of my sins and I get to go to heaven when I die. And they literally have become Christmas, Easter Christians. And they celebrate Christmas because Jesus is born and they celebrate his death and his resurrection because they get eternal life. And as soon as they get that, that's all they need. I'm good to go. And now on to my life. And I think that has happened in the church in America. And I think that's one of the major problems is we have reduced the gospel to a transaction that you get something out of it. And once you get what you get, 
You don't need anybody else, and you don't need to be part of a community-wide movement that's working in the kingdom of God together, using their resources, servants together. We become individualized, and we pull away instead of seeing the reality of the gospel as Jesus being the king, and there is a kingdom coming, and we get to participate by being loyal to the king with great reward. But we do it together. And that is a reframing and a restructuring of the gospel that maybe you grew up hearing. And of Christmas. And I want you to think about that a second. Because that's what I think Jesus is teaching in the parable of Luke chapter 19. And that's what Mark is referring to in Mark chapter 1. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom gospel is now being presented. And the word time is kairos. Don't, don't miss this. The time in Mark 1.14 has been fulfilled. Not chronos time. Not like it's 11.30. I should be finishing up. It's, what is it? It's it's kairos time. It's opportune time. It's a different way of thinking about time. In fact, one wrote, kairos is summarized in the modern uh, aphorism, right time, right place. Right time, right place. Kairos is putting yourself in the right time at the right place. This suggests that you are helping to define your time as opposed to dwelling in the past or the future. Are you defining your reality as a Kairos moment right now where you live? Or are you just simply biding, biding time? There's the challenge. And that's what Mark's pushing us forward. He's pushing forward and he's pushing us into because the next thing Jesus is going to do is he's going to go out and find disciples and say, follow me. Because the Kairos opportune time is now. The kingdom of God is here. What will you do? What will you do? Opportune moment. And Christmas is about acknowledging the birth of a king and seeing his kingdom unfold in this world through your life. There will be opportune moments this Christmas for you to show the kingdom of God to others. A moment in time, and don't miss where you are. A new world order is dawning. A new way of life. Jesus taught and preached and told us about it in the Gospels. God is not subject, subjugating people, by, but he's setting them free. Because his kingdom is a good kingdom, and he is a good king. He's a benevolent king. We find people in the Gospels as blessed, happy, satisfied, fulfilled, but only when Jesus is king over their lives. Don't be in such a big hurry this Christmas to get to your Christmas goose and put it on the table and all your people around, and your peeps around this festive supper. God's kingdom is unfolding as you live and I live faithful to Jesus, our King, and reveal in our actions his way of life, a far superior way of life, a life of love, a life of patience, a life of kindness and acceptance and concern and compassion and willingness to make a difference. Maybe someone that you meet, like Harry, 
or a family like Angel Reese's family that's now left behind. Denise and I went up to Lake Arrowhead and uh, on our way home Saturday, we stopped to visit Denise's mom. Denise's dad passed away from cancer and, and Denise's mom remarried a wonderful man, my stepfather-in-law and Ed passed away several months ago. And Anne has decided to move into um, a beautiful independent living community in Fullerton. And I mean, it's beautiful. She has her own place, her kitchen, and we got the grand tour this Saturday and it's all decorated for Christmas and she takes her meals in this beautiful restaurant. And she says, she says with this proud, she's, we're standing at the entrance, she goes, they really want us to feel like we live in a five-star hotel here. I love that. And you go down and there's a pizza oven and there's all these chefs working and they get their meals and they, they have... They play games, and there's all sorts of stuff to do. And these are independent people, elderly, but independent. And it's a wonderful. And my first thought was, wow, you're having dinner here every night. Do you tip your servers? And she says, oh, no, it's all included. But every Christmas, we all, we all join in and give a chunk of money. And I'm sure it's quite a bit of money because they invite all their staff and their staff's families to come to this independent community living center and experience a Christmas. And they throw a Christmas and they lavish upon them gifts with all of their money, saying thank you for the year of service in our lives. And I left that place yesterday thinking, this is the kingdom of God on earth. This is what it looks like bringing Christmas to people that may not have a chance to experience Christmas. And my challenge this morning, as we worship the Lord and we go to communion and be thinking about communion, is that maybe this is our opportunity to give Christmas to somebody else. Give someone else a Christmas experience whether it's a box or whether it's a meal or whether it's an opportunity to demonstrate that your king is far superior than any other king in all the world because the kingdom of God is a just kingdom and you get to live in it and you're simply displaying it in Jesus' name. So Father, as we begin our time of just um, reflection this month on the Advent season, may we be thinking clearly that we have an opportunity this morning and throughout this month to reframe our Christmas experience as one where we don't simply get something. That Jesus isn't coming to give us something. He's come to call us into action. To give our lives purpose and meaning. And then to lavish upon us the gifts of reward for serving faithfully to him. And I pray, Father, for every person in here, wherever they are, in their journey of faith, they may meet King Jesus as he truly is. In Jesus' name, amen.